0: MTP Connect podcast. Stuart Dignam and Dr. Dan Grant with you. Thanks for tuning in. For this episode, we're meeting an economist from Newcastle. Oh dear. <laughs> Our guest started out as a graduate recruit in the Department of Finance and also worked in Treasury. He since then uh, spent more than three decades working at the highest levels of public policy and politics. He served as a Senator for New South Wales, Chief of Staff to the Prime Minister, Cabinet Secretary, and in 2017 was the Minister for Industry, Innovation and Science. And for the next chapter of his life in public service, he'll be shortly moving to Washington to be Australia's ambassador to the United States. Arthur Sinodinos, welcome to our podcast.
1: Thank you, great to be with you.
0: Since you joined John Howard's office in 1987, you've had a hand in... uh, in a lot of the biggest reforms in this country. A lot, of, a lot of stuff's come across your desk, but I noticed that you recently reflected that you relished the role of Minister for uh, Innovation, Science and Industry. What about that portfolio was so appealing?
1: I felt that portfolio was at the cutting edge of what Australia should be about. And that is using the best science, uh, the best inventions, the best innovation, homegrown innovation, to develop new jobs and new industries here in Australia. I'm not saying that everything we uh, originate here uh, has to stay here. Um, I'm a great believer in globalisation and in international exchange. And I think it's great for um, our people and various uh, inventions and discoveries to have the opportunity to have the whole of the world as um, as their potential marketplace. But I was always very keen on this idea that we increase the number of firms, the number of entrepreneurs here in Australia because I don't want Australia to be a branch office economy. I want decisions about Australia and Australian jobs being made here by Australians uh, through companies which have not only a good presence in Australia but the capacity to have a global footprint.
0: So that, that, as an economist, the incentivising of of, of innovation of entrepreneurs, what what role do you think that can play in, in the economy you know, the knowledge- intensive industries and, and the future prosperity of the country.
1: I think uh, entrepreneurs are particularly important, and, and that's a cultural change which is still happening in Australia and it's not about if you want to paint this in black and white, the Americanization of the Australian economy but I think we can do with more of a culture of risk-taking and entrepreneurship. There are certain things government can do. Government can play a very strategic role, but it's important to create an environment in which people are prepared to take risks, back themselves and bring new things to the marketplace. I look at what the Israelis have done, for example, and what they've done is in part driven, of course, by their own circumstances and therefore the role of government and the defence force in pursuing innovation. But a lot of that has also been about backing people to do things and then... If people, if it doesn't work out, they don't say, well, you've got the Mark of Cain on your forehead and that's the end of it. They say, well, what have you learned from that? And if you've learned from that, we'll back you. And in other words, and I want that sort of culture here. And it's a culture that government should be backing as well. Rather than this culture, which tends to be, particularly in the public service, that you have to be really risk averse. Because if you do something um, that's out of line, uh, well, you're going to get whacked and you're not going to be backed because you were trying to do the right thing. But that'll take some time,
0: right? Like, we've, we've, we've so been trying to do it and we're, we're but, getting but there.
1: But you've got to start somewhere. That's that, that that's right. And I look at areas of government spending, like defence procurement, which can help to drive uh, a lot of innovation through domestic industry spin-offs. I look at our health spending. Yeah, Health is an area that's going to be expanding in the Australian economy and And obviously, that's going to have certain requirements. But there's a lot of innovation that can come off that spending. We now have the Medical Research Future Fund. We have all these other mechanisms. There's a lot of stuff we can do here. And we have very high. One of the things that really I'm optimistic about is we have such highly professional people. We train really good people. In that sense, we punch above our weight. And it's using that to create the new products and processes and medicines and others of the future. So, Senator, I think that's
2: really an important point. I mean, we're, we're sort of seeing that, that there are pressures on the PBS, on the healthcare budget, yeah. budget, but I think you probably agree that there's opportunities to grow the sector and to actually generate income, economic outputs and jobs through that sector. To do that, what do you think the next steps are for Australia? What do we really have to do to develop that culture of entrepreneurship and to leverage the quality research that we have in
1: Australia? I think we have to entrench the innovation ecosystem, I mean, it's developing, uh, and there are some great hubs and clusters, particularly in areas like medicine and related applications. But we need to really entrench those ecosystems. And that means the government policy around the sector has to be as certain and predictable as possible. Um, I think the good work that Karen Andrews and others are doing to protect the R&D tax incentive and how that operates and how that's applied is very important because we have... um, It's one of the few things we've got in our kit when we're talking to uh, companies here or overseas about the ways in which we can cut their costs of doing business in Australia and doing more in Australia. So that incentivisation is in, in part fiscal, no doubt about it. In part, it's about making it easier for people to do business here compared to some other jurisdictions. It means, for example, clinical trials. Can we make them as easy and simple and straightforward as possible while maintaining their integrity and the ethics and everything else that has to go with them? So it's a whole series of things we have to do. And the economy itself, we've got to keep trying to make it as competitive as possible, which is in part also a function of competition policy, getting rid of barriers to entry, getting rid of policies that favour large incumbents at the expense of new players or startups. Um, but government doesn't have all the answers on this, so it's obviously important to get input from industry about what they see as the barriers to doing more here. I'm pleased that you mentioned clinical trials, because again, that's one of the, I think
2: one of the areas where Australia can can really excel. We're seeing that that is becoming a major export for Australia in terms of attracting international (laughs) clinical trials. And it's becoming recognised
1: internationally as a place, a go-to place for for clinical trials. I liked what you said on clinical trials, because I agree with you. I think it's an area where we can have a comparative advantage. uh, And it's very important for us um, because we've got a multicultural population, and And I think it is because of the quality of our workforce and personnel and everything else here, I think it is a good place to do that sort of thing so So my answer is there's a whole series of things you have to do to promote a culture of risk taking and entrepreneurship. Part of it is government policy, and part of it is how we incentivize the private sector.
0: perhaps part of it is the way that our researchers and our startups and our entrepreneurs. Are engaging with the world because the world is, you know, very competitive. And if you're going to if you're going to have a global product, then you'll only survive if you're competitive, which perhaps spurs some some innovation, some risk taking.
1: I think that's a good point. I think that we have to have that global mindset. We have to um, see the world as our potential marketplace. We have to understand the competition that's out there. They're not uh, sitting back waiting for us to succeed. So we've got to get on with it. Um, one of the things I've always been keen on is making sure we have really good research facilities here which attract the interest of international partners who see that this is a good place with which to partner in research, particularly in the more fundamental and basic research, which often has the biggest spin offs in the long run. It takes a while, it takes a long time, but that's preeminently an area which government sh- should play a role. Uh, and when I was minister, one of the things I worked on with Simon Birmingham was this roadmap around um the funding of the national capital research facilities and i think that was very important and
2: do you think we invest enough in in facilities enough in in research we've got the
1: nhmrc the arc (coughs) the mrff Mm -hmm. is that sufficient well when you look at the i mean how long is a piece of string Uh, you can always potentially use more money but money is not infinite and there are a lot of calls on the on the public purse If you look at the amount of spending in the health area, in principle, there's a lot to work with. And things like the Medical Research Future Fund, when that comes to its full, uh, builds up to its full amount, uh, is a major fund to drive a lot of uh, health-related research and potential implications that flow from that. So a lot of it is also understanding what we need to do with the funds we've got and how can we use them in a smarter way as well.
0: And what about the joining up of research and industry? We're getting better at that too, and that's one of the reasons MTP Connect exists. What other areas, what other other, uh, initiatives would we pursue in the joining up of research and industry?
1: Bill Ferris, when he was Head of Innovation Science Australia, um, he was keen to incentivise, through the R&D tax incentive, collaboration per se, but the view the government took at the time is that this can't be just something that's tax-driven. It's got to be something that develops organically or is encouraged, to, and, and is therefore more sustainable. It's not relying on the tax break to exist. Um, so part of what we've tried to do is change the arrangements around some of the research grants to give greater weight to people thinking about commercialisation and applications. Because uh, often there's a tendency here... Uh, to just look at people's publication history and all that sort of thing. But I think a lot of it is actually also making it easier for startups and new entrants to get access to the information and resources they need to compete with established players. I think that's part of it as well.
0: If we could perhaps chat a little bit about um, public policy and how public policy is developed and how it evolves over time. You mentioned the MRFF Mm. and the MRFF is supporting the stem cell therapeutics mission and um, Dan is actually on the expert advisory committee for that. Stem cells, and I think embryonic stem cells was a pretty hotly contested issue back in in the early mm. two thousands, to the point where it's now a major uh, initiative, a major drive mm. of the government. To talk about that evolution of policy over over time. How does that how does that occur? You've got a unique perspective on that.
1: In, in terms of embryonic stem cells, um, it was it was quite interesting because um, people, when this issue came up, people would have expected. John Howard, in particular, being a relatively conservative person, to take a pretty dim view about what you used stem cell, yeah, embryonic stem cells for. But, um, but rather than just have a reflex view, uh, and this was coming up in the context of a meeting of, with the State Premier the Council of Australian Governments, and put Peter Beattie and others were involved, um, but rather than just have a reflex action, he actually did research on this. He talked to various players on all sides, including senior scientists, and became convinced that, um, in effect, for those embryos, which might otherwise be thrown away, it was actually a good idea to use them for this sort of research. So I think, from memory, they worked out a compromise along those lines, and it helped to get the whole process moving along. Um, And that was a good example of um, trying to use an evidence base to come to um, an informed decision, and it was a nice little model of how these things can work terms of policy development.
0: And from those public policy decisions, you know, the, the stem cell industry, for want of a better term, the regenerative medicine industry yeah. in Australia is now pretty significant and, mm. and to use your term, punching above its weight globally. It's an area of competitive advantage. So, so perhaps a, a, whole, a whole industry has been mm. created off the back of public policy. Yeah,
1: and, and that's probably something that wasn't even foreseen at the time, but it's a good example of uh, how if you make the right decision based on informed advice uh, it can potentially have these longer term effects and one of the things i've always been interested in is how we make sure that we get that proper evidence base so we can make those decisions uh, and so it's not seen as a um, an overtly politicized process so in terms of stem cells and regenerative medicine do do you think we've actually capitalized on our capabilities there well or is this an example of, of where we've got a ways to go? My view is always that if you've been able to build a good industry or you know develop a good sector around this, um, and that's potentially a comparative advantage, we should keep building on it. And therefore, for example, in the context of the funding that you alluded to before, uh, is there funding available that can help to build that? In other words, you build on success rather than seek to create entirely new industries in areas where you don't have any reason to believe you've got a comparative advantage. But this is one that's developed, so you have to look at how it can develop further potentially.
2: And, and, and where do you see the next, the next big opportunities? We've got, we've got a growing medicinal cannabis industry, yeah. which, which again has a, a <coughs> bit of a policy change around it and, and potential, um, a host of other things, digital
1: health. Where, where do you think we might
2: best benefit?
1: Well, I mean, one of, one of the challenges you raise, digital health, is around how we use data to improve outcomes. And um, the whole purpose of digital health records and the, and the rest was by having in one place someone's records, making it much easier for clinicians and others to, to work out from a person's history and treatments um, what it might be they have at the moment, how it might be affected by what's gone before. So I found in my case, um, having had cancer and various things along the way and, and then had to see specialists on the heart and on the kidneys and all the rest of it, as often happens, you know how you end up having to see various specialists for various side effects and whatever. Having the information in one place so they can see your entire history and be able to work out from that exactly what what point you're at, it it makes it easier almost for the GP to then become a bit of a case manager for you. And potentially what that means is we can be more efficient and effective in determining how to help you and your health and potentially as well, part of it is, is the focus that then goes on prevention as opposed to treatment. And, and it's all about getting the data together and understanding what does the data tell us. It's interesting, we were
2: at Pharmas in Canberra and, and somebody in the audience suggested that the only time people are not worried about privacy in relation to the health records is when they're sick. And it's, it's that time where once you're sick, you want your records available. We have to, I think we have to change the, the focus and, and get people to want their records
1: available. I, th- I think what's happened in that space is that we had the odd data breach, which sort of came out of the blue, and people thought, well, we've been given all these guarantees, nothing's going to go wrong. And when people see that and they think, oh, is this all really going to work? But you're right, I certainly found that in my situation. In a situation where this is potential life and death, you want people to have access to the best information about you to make the most informed choices.
0: And and so, so from your lived experience, yes. that's important. And um, also from your lived experience, mm. the, the fact that medical devices, medical technology, um, you know, novel novel medicines actually saves lives. So there's a there's a patient benefit. Well,
1: I'll give you another example. I was out at the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse. and. Um, I was talking to some of the uh, senior clinicians there and um, they deal with sarcomas which are cancers sort of in the, in the tissue and, and all the rest of it and often these are they're rare cancers which afflict young people in particular and often the only way to deal with them is to amputate limbs uh, and then the question becomes well you know, what prosthetics do you use and all the rest of it but now these clinicians and others are looking at how you use 3D printing and everything else to create new parts literally Parts for the body, for the pelvis, and for areas and whatever, and it's reaching a new level.
2: I, I think three D printing is really an, uh, an interesting example of of personalised medicine, if you like. Yes. It's an example of where you can actually have implants printed to your exact specifications. We think of the the Cyro and Anatomics rib cage that was implanted in the cancer um, um, survivor in in France, I think, a few years mm. ago, and it's really quite an interesting space that that Australia has the potential to really establish itself, it's a new form of manufacturing, it's a new opportunity for the sector. So I think I think that is, is really quite an interesting space. That leads on to then of course genomics. Um, the genomics yep. mission again focused on precision medicine, personalised mm. medicine, great opportunities for the economy.
1: Well, well, Bill Ferris here in Australia, I think he saw that as one of the moonshots, if you like, coming out of his second report on innovation and science in Australia. And Um, He saw us as potentially being a world leader in personalised medicine with the aim of being able to apply this to the the population as a whole by a certain date. And yeah, I agree with you, all of that genomics um, is very important. Um, I think one of the challenges in our system always is to make sure there's open access in terms of information so that when people are coming up with new ideas or good results, um, there's that exchange which then influences uh, and informs people about progress, and then they each build on that. Uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of open access when it comes to the research, but it's important for governments to be conscious of how to promote that as well.
2: And that, I guess that, that sort of gets into the the federated nat- nature of our healthcare system in oh, Australia, the and, yes. and 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 how we and and how we can actually
1: take steps to make those data available and
2: and to unify.
1: I mean, let me give you an example, and this is totally from an outside perspective now. But looking at, say, state hospitals, do we have enough data to work out when it comes to state hospitals how efficient and effective each one is? Are we making sure, say if we the federal government, um, and it's not really our job because the state hospitals belong to the states, making sure that each health dollar is being most effectively distributed through that system? And if there are ways to make these entities operate better, how do we influence that process and how do we incentivise that? Stepping b- back to genomics yeah. and then moving from
2: precision medicine to personalized medicine, mm. uh, um, I met with the head of the NHS England mm. a few months ago, and he and he raised the concept of personalized prevention, and, and using data yes. to yeah. prevent. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. yeah. This is the ultimate goal. And, and so Do you think? I, I think that's really important. If we can if we can leverage those data to prevent illness, prevent disease.
1: Well, and part of that is also, of course data on your family, on your antecedents, and working out from that. For example, both my parents had bowel cancer at various times. My father ended up passing away from it. My mother ended up with a colostomy for 30 years of her life. Um, but it's having, being informed about where you've come from, mm. and that history, can also be important in indicating, well, what is it likely that, that this person will be most subject to? Are they likely, on balance, to be obese or overweight? Are they likely, because of their background, to be smokers? You know, all these predictive things that then work into what I think the head of the NHS is talking about.
2: And I think your point of, of knowing where you've come from and knowing the data about your parents and your parents' parents, mm. you know, I think we have to start now to collect those data because yeah. it's, you know, it's not possible to go back and get them from my parents. No. But for my kids and for their kids, I think it's really important we're collecting those data now mm. and, and effectively utilizing them.
0: Senator, you've been very generous with your time. Just a couple of more questions.
1: Whatever turns you on. We, we,
0: we, we, we mentioned that you're heading off to Washington soon. Yeah. And obviously the relationship between Australia and the United States is incredibly strong. Mm. It's the case across a lot of sectors. It's certainly the case in medtech and pharma and, mm-hmm. and, and biotech. Collaboration between researchers, collaboration yeah. between um, I- industries, between you know, industry partners—is that going to be high on your agenda when you when you do get to Washington?
1: Uh, I mean, obviously, you have a certain agenda that's given to you as the representative of your country, uh, advancing your national interest, and it often covers, you know, defense, security, economics, and trade. But within that. Uh, there are particular areas i am keen to to have a closer look at including science and innovation and that covers in part what we've been talking about today Uh, i'm very conscious of the way the us uh, promotes commercialization and collaboration and i'm looking at what are the lessons potentially from how they do it that we can apply here the health sector over there is a very interesting sector because you know they have some really top class wonderful stuff that goes on notwithstanding the fact that obviously they have issues with the the health system and how it operates, but seeing what, I suppose, potential there is to further those links between the two systems, given the quality of the US system, is something I am keen to get
0: advice on from here, and we go from there. Senator, thank you so much for your time. As I say, very generous and, and great to get your insights. Thanks. Good to see you. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Stuart. You're listening to the MTP Connect podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe. It means you get every new episode automatically and do give us a rating. Until next time.